And uh, let's... Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin there. Genesis 3, chapter, I mean, verse 20. We're kind of going to, what we're going to do is is finish uh, chapter 3. Now, though I have not really taught verse by verse through chapter 3, we've kind of generalized over two messages um, um, up to chapter 3. We talked about how God has a plan in everything. God had a plan in creation. God had a plan in the fall. God has a plan. There's grace. Grace has been provided in and through everything. There was grace in creation. There was grace in the fall. There is still grace today. There's grace for our past. There's grace for our present. And there's grace for our future. And so... um, We're going to talk specifically today as we look at these last several verses of of Genesis chapter 3. And this is going to take us into Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to be here for a little while, and I'm calling this the gospel in Genesis. And so we're just taking some some big themes, and we're taking some specific things, and we're looking at how these communicate the gospel to us. And when I say, how does it communicate the gospel, how does it communicate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or we could just simply say, how does it communicate Christ to us? So let's read Genesis 3, let's begin in verse 20, and read to the end of the chapter. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden in a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now specifically we're talking about the life of another. The life of another. How we must look to and trust in the life of another. So let's pray as we go to the scripture and ask God, to open our hearts and to open our minds. Father, you are so good and so graceful, and you gave to us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, in giving us the Holy Spirit, you gave us a counselor, you gave us a comforter, you gave us a teacher, you gave us a guide, you gave us, Lord, one who would open blind eyes and open deaf ears and bring the dead to life. And cause us to see and to know a life other than our own. Lord, you gave us the Spirit to reveal Christ to us. And we thank you, Lord, that the Scripture teaches us that Christ is in us. And Christ is our hope of glory. Lord, 
Open our eyes today. Help us to see. Open our ears today and help us to hear. Break our hard hearts today. And let your word have entrance. and Let it change us and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So God's eternal plan is always, and I say is, not was, because eternity is not a past and it's not a future. It's a present reality. Eternity has no beginning and eternity has no end. So the eternal plan of God is always that we should look to and trust in the life of another. So from the beginning of the creation, we see God, the author of all things, and God is the author. We see God, the author of all things, crafting His story in such a way that He is continuously revealing to us and leading us to the life of another. So let's turn back a page, a few verses, uh, to Genesis chapter 2, and let's look at verses 23 and 24. Now this is uh, immediately following the creation of woman. So God created Adam from the dust of the earth. Now remember, God did everything to reveal something to us, to paint a picture for us, to point us in a direction. So God takes the dirt and he makes Adam. And then he says it's not good for man to be alone, not because man was lonely. That's, that's not why it wasn't good. It wasn't good because if you read very carefully the Genesis account in the first chapter, chronicling the days of creation, you see that at one point when God makes the herbs and the grass and the trees, it says that every kind and the animals, every kind produces after its own kind. And then the very last thing God created was man on day six. And then God brings all the animals to man. And Adam names all the animals. And it says something interesting, that Adam did not find any like himself. But everybody else had someone like themselves. And God says, it's not good that man should be alone. Not because man was lonely, but because man could not produce after his own kind by himself. So God created a woman. And where did God create the woman from? Not the dirt as he created man. He created the woman from the side or the rib of Adam. So we see that God created the woman from the life of the man. That She was birthed and produced from the very life of the man. Now if this is a picture, what's it a picture of? Well, it's a picture of Christ and his church. Because we, the church, the people of God, the children of God, don't come forth from ourselves. And we don't come forth from the dirt. We come forth from the life of another. And so even in creation, we see that all life comes from the life of another. And that God is the author of life. And so from the very beginning, God begins to point us to Christ. He begins to point us to our redemption and our salvation that His plan always was and always is 
and always will be that we are to look to, to trust in the life of another. So let's read these two verses, Genesis 2, 23 and 24. And Adam said, after the woman was brought to him, and he sees her, and he calls her woman, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two become one. So the first man and woman reveal to us Christ and his bride, the church. How do we know that? Well, let's hold your place there. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. So any of you guys that have gone through premarital or marital counseling with me, you know right where I'm going because this is the first thing that we cover when we talk about marriage. What is marriage and what does marriage represent? Marriage is not just a cultural or societal institution or contract between a man and a woman. Marriage was created by God, for God, for the glory of God. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but actually the whole chapter here, especially when you get to Ephesians chapter 5 and you get over here to verse 22, all the women are rejoicing right now. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. All you men are sitting there thinking, yeah. And we like to joke about those things and we like to laugh about those things, but I I want you to understand this is so very serious. What God instituted at creation between a man and a woman is so profound, it's so divine, it is so... Glorious. It's beyond our human comprehension. And the reason this is important to understand that marriage is not just about a man and a woman and their happiness and how happy and successful they're going to be together and how many children they're going to have and, and all of that. I mean, those are all wonderful benefits of marriage, but marriage is first and foremost and primarily about God and His glory. And why does God tell the wife to submit to the husband as to the Lord? He tells us in verse 23 of Ephesians 5, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Husbands, before you rejoice too much in verse 22, I want you to feel the weight of responsibility in verse 23. That the Bible likens you to Christ, and you are the head of your wife, and you are the head of your family, as Christ is the head of the church. God has placed upon you a responsibility, a weight of glory that that is much greater than, than we can just comprehend in a human or a cultural or a societal way of thinking. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Husbands, this is what you are commanded to do. This is not a once and done thing. This is your life responsibility as a husband, as a father, 
to sanctify, to wash, and to cleanse with the washing of the water of the Word. Husband, how are you going to do that if you're not in the Word? How are you going to do that if the Word's not in you? How are you going to wash your wife with the water of the Word if the water of the Word has not washed you? I know it's not Father's Day yet, but it's coming. But it's okay. We'll talk about it anyways. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. I want you to pay close attention to verse 30. For we are members of his, for we, 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 not he, not her, but we. He's talking to men and women. He's talking to husbands and wife. He's talking to the redeemed. For we, the redeemed, are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24. For this reason... So here is the Bible interpreting the Bible. Here is the Bible telling you what the Bible means. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the the two shall become one flesh. Look at verse 32. For this is a great mystery. The mystery... Is not Christ in the church. That's the eternal purpose of God. The mystery is the man and the woman. Picturing, pointing to, revealing to us Christ in his church. The vast majority of our culture today does not have a clue about that. They do not look at marriage. Otherwise, we would not be fighting for same-sex marriage. We will not be fighting to tear down the institution of marriage if we understood what marriage is and what marriage was given to us for. Marriage was given to show us, to point to us, to reveal to us Christ and His church. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one Nevertheless, let each one, even though this goes much greater than the individual happiness of you husbands and wives, this is what Paul is saying, nevertheless, even though this, the meaning of this is so much greater, don't lose also this, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now let's go back to Genesis. So the first man and woman revealed to us Christ and his bride, the church. So as Christ is the head of the church, so husbands, you are the head of your wife. Marriage was created by God to point us to Christ and his church. We all, as the body of Christ, are to be submitted to Christ, our head. All of us, man, woman, husband, wife, child, adult, we are all to be submitted to Christ who is our head. This is what marriage is teaching us. This is what marriage is witnessing to the world. 
As with all things, marriage is not first about us. It is first about Him and about His glory. Listen, our joy, our happiness, and our fulfillment will flow from that truth, the truth that our marriage is a witness to Christ and His glory. Marriage reveals God's plan that we be joined to the life of another. And that other life is Christ. Now, let's, let's go back to Genesis 3. Let's look at verse 20. So then after Eve, is, uh, the woman comes to the man, she's, she's created out of the life of Adam, out of the side of Adam. They come together, they're in the garden, then the serpent comes, they fall into sin. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. After the fall into sin, the curse is pronounced. And along with the curse, in the midst of this curse, there is a promise found in Genesis 3.15. I want to draw your attention to the promise. You have lots of verses that deal with the curse. Don't let the promise get lost in the midst of the curse. So in Genesis 3.15, here is the promise, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And her seed will crush your head, serpent, even though you will bruise his heel. So in the process of the seed, the promised seed who is Christ, crushing the head of the serpent. The serpent, yes, will bruise the heel of the seed, but that seed will come one day in the fullness of time and will crush the head of the serpent and put an end to that which is old and fallen and cursed and usher in and bring forth a new creation. So God pronounces the curse upon Adam, upon Eve, upon the serpent. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve. Now he called her woman while ago, which means part counterpart. Now he calls her Eve. And the Bible tells us what this means, because she was the mother of all living. Now let's stop there for a moment. Eve is the mother of all living. Who is Eve? She's the first woman taken, created out of the side in the life of Adam. Who is she picturing? She's picturing the church, the body of Christ. Who is the church? Let's go over to Galatians. Now hold your place in Genesis. Let's go to the other end of your Bible. Let's go to Galatians. Let's go to chapter 4, and let's look at verse 26, Galatians 4, 26. I think that's correct. A little verse with huge significance, Galatians 4, 26. But the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem above, which is free, which is the mother of us all. Now that's a teaching all in and of itself, and I don't have time to do that, but, but just a little context. Paul is talking about the law and grace. He's talking about Mount Sinai, where the law was given. 
And he says, Mount Sinai represents something. Mount Sinai represents a covenant. But it's a covenant to bondage. Mount Sinai is likened to Hagar, which was the concubine of Abraham. Remember the, remember the story where Abraham and Sarah were promised a child, but Abraham was old and Sarah was old and they couldn't have any kids. And one day they get this bright idea. Maybe God's going to give his children through Hagar. Sarah says, hey, Abraham, look, since I'm too old to have kids, uh, maybe, it's, maybe I'm the problem. God gave you the promise. Why don't you take Hagar in there and go sleep with her, and maybe the promised child will come through her. And sure enough, Abraham takes Hagar in there, sleeps with her, produces a child. His name is Ishmael. Only problem was that wasn't God's plan. That was Abraham and Sarah's plan. That was man's plan, but it wasn't God's plan. It was a failed plan. And even though it was a failed plan, God still had his plan. And so Paul is saying, Hagar represents Mount Sinai, or Mount Sinai represents Hagar. It's bondage. The law puts us in bondage. But he says, the Jerusalem above, Jerusalem corresponds to to, uh, the children of promise. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, if we just stopped right there, we would be very confused. It's like, what in the heck is Paul talking about? The Jerusalem above. Now, here's the importance of knowing the Scripture, of studying the Scripture. What's the best interpretation for the Scripture? Not the guy on TV. Not the guy on the radio. The best interpretation for the scripture is the scripture. How do we understand Genesis 2, 24? Well, the Bible in Ephesians 5, 32 teaches us what that is. How do we understand what Paul is talking about here? The Jerusalem above is, is free, which is the mother of us all. Well, let's, let's go over to the back of our Bible, to the book of Revelation. Let's go almost to the end of our Bible, and let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Now, Revelation, it's not the revelation of end-time events. That's what people like to think it's about. That seems like the only thing people write books about are all the end-time events. So they read a headline in the newspaper, and then the next day there's a brand new book out about how this headline is proving. Listen, the book of Revelation wasn't given to us so that we could write books about current events. The actual title of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of end-time events. It's not the revelation of current events. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of the judgments. It's not the revelation of the end of the world. It's not any of that. So when you read the book of Revelation, don't read it as that. Though I know the pressure is great on you to read it as that, because that's all people want to focus on. But yet, if you just start at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, and by the way, there's a warning that says don't add to or take away any for anything from this book. So let's not add to the book something that was never meant to be added to it. Let's read the book for what it is. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. So let's believe the Bible. So we come to the end of this book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 21. Let's look at the verse First verse of chapter 21. Now I saw, this is John the Apostle having this vision. 
Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Hold your place there. Remember, what does Paul say? But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Hmm. John says, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Now, Joe and Ashley are with us today. Joe, you hadn't lost it. So it was really good to have Joe on the drums. And uh, so Joe and Ashley got married April 13th last year. Ashley became Joe's bride. I'm not picking on y'all, but it's a great example. We have the same thing here with Spencer and Marley. Spencer and Marley got married. Marley became Spencer's bride. And now, lo and behold, both of them are now pregnant with child. So Marley's due any moment, literally. Ashley's due August 9th. So this bride and this bride are pregnant. They are mothers getting ready to birth their children. So Joe and Spencer have a bride, and their bride is pregnant and is the mother of their children. Brides become mothers. Now, let's go back to the Bible. What does it say this Jerusalem is? says she's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let's skip down to verse 9, Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Look, there's Ashley, the bride, Joe's wife. There's Marley, the bride, Spencer's wife, pregnant with their children. The angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. What's he talking about? Well, we know from the very beginning of this, he's talking about a city coming down out of heaven. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus is not marrying a city. He's marrying a bride. And the Bible says we are the bride of Christ. We are the people of God. And the Bible likens us to a city. And Paul says that city, the church, the new Jerusalem, is the mother of us all. Eve, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Adam called Eve the mother of all living. The church is called the mother of us all. 
The Jerusalem above is called the mother of us all, Galatians 4.26. The church is the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. She is called the bride of the Lamb. Do you, do you catch the imagery? Do you catch the connection? Eve is called the mother of all living. If Adam is a picture of Christ and Eve is a picture of the church, are you catching the picture? God created Adam and Eve in the beginning to picture for us, to show us Christ and his church. Eve is called the mother of all living. The church is called the mother of us all. Eve was the bride of Adam. The church is the bride of Christ. The bride is pregnant with something. The bride is pregnant with the children of the bridegroom, of the husband. So the church is called the mother of us all, the mother of all living, for she is the bride of the Lamb, the body of Christ, listen, through which his children find and share life. Those babies that are in the wombs of those mothers have found and share the life of that mother. As a child lives because of the life and the body of the mother, so we live because of the life and body of another who is Christ. You cannot be saved and not be a member of his body of his bone and of his flesh. You cannot be saved and not be a member of his church, which is his body. This is why Paul teaches us in Ephesians 4, he talks about every part of the body doing its part, sharing life. So right now, the life in your body is being shared by every part of your body. Your hand is giving life to your arm, and your arm is giving life to your hand. The babies in the wombs of those mothers, those babies are not giving life to that mother. That mother is giving life to that baby. We don't give life to Christ. Christ gives life to us. But because we are in Christ and we are called the body, we need to understand that we need one another. We have been created to be joined to him and joined to one another. And we have been created to share life with one another. The church is called the mother of us all. Just as Eve was called the mother of all living, she was the bride of Adam. We are the bride of Christ. Look at verse 21. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. So, do you see how God, in His creation, He's the author, He's the artist, He's the guy that is molding and shaping and sculpting and painting and writing. And in all of His creating, in all of His creation, He is constantly revealing to us, showing us, this truth. Look at verse 21. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So we're talking about 
the life of another, that God's plan was always that we would have to trust in the life of another. Sin most graphically reveals our dependence upon the life of another. Just a few pages over in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. We go over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22. And the writer of Hebrews affirms exactly what was written by Moses in the book of Leviticus. Hebrews 9, 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Verse 21, it can be easily missed. Look what it says. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So here's Adam and Eve created. They're naked. They don't know they're naked. They eat from the tree. They fall from grace. They fall into sin and death. Their eyes are open, knowing good and evil. They realize they're naked. The first thing they did, they hid themselves. They hid in the bushes, they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. God comes, Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know, but because he wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to, don't you hate it when people ask you questions that they know the answer up to? But, but you know they're just asking you those questions because they want to make sure you know the answer. And they want to make sure that you know that they know the answer. And God asks questions of Adam, and God asks questions of us by his Spirit and in his Word, because God wants us to see the condition of our own hearts. Because if we're not careful, we don't even have to be careful. It comes very naturally. We will just cover over the condition of our heart. We'll just cover it up with fig leaves or anything we can find. We'll bury our hearts so deep under stuff. It could be good stuff. It may be horrible stuff. It could be work and achievement and career or family. It could be drugs, alcohol, and, and, and anything. But we, we cover our hearts up because that's just what fallen men do. They cover themselves and they hide from God. And God comes. He pronounces the curse God says, those fig leaves that you sewed together for yourselves, that will not do. So I want you to understand, though the Bible does not tell us graphically, we understand graphically what happened here. There were animals that were sacrificed. There was blood that was shed so that God could cover sinful Adam and Eve. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no Remission, there is no covering for sin. God said, your, the works of your hands, your fig leaves won't cut it. And God wants us to understand, and God wanted Israel to understand, and this is why God gave Israel the Judaic law, that system where 
they sacrifice constantly and daily in the tabernacle and in the temple. And we have in the church today this romantic notion of the temple and the tabernacle. But I'm telling you what, we have no clue how bloody and how gross that place was because of the amount of blood and death that was always there. And I believe there was a stench that went with that because God did never want his children to think that sin does not cost us because it does. And so God sacrificed these animals and he takes and he covers Adam and Eve. Man sinned and there was the shedding of blood to provide a covering for sinful man. God sacrificed the life of animals to cover sinful Adam and Eve. And we see that from the time, from that time all the way up until Jesus came, that man had shed the blood of animals in an effort to cover and atone for sin. But the best it could do was buy man time until the next sin was committed and then another animal had to be sacrificed. Another offering had to be offered up on behalf of sin. God never intended that the blood of bulls and goats would atone for sin. All the blood that was shed, all the death and all the dying was only pointing us to someone. It was pointing us and painting a picture of and telling us the story of the one who would come. The promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. The righteousness that God in the law demanded was never met in the blood of animals or the efforts of sinful man. Adam and Eve diligently sewed their fig leaves together together to cover themselves. Next week, we're going to look at another story in the very next chapter of the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel, and we're going to see how two very different persons brought two very different offerings to God, and God rejected one out of hand and God accepted another. And at first glance, it seems very unfair that God would do what he did in rejecting Cain's offering. But he rejected that for the same reason that he rejected the fig leaves that Adam and Eve sewed together to cover themselves. And so it's never by the efforts of sinful man never by the blood of animals. The only life that could atone for our sin is the life and the precious blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must trust in the life of another. We must trust in the life of Christ. Verse 22, Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has come, become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, verse 24, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So not only did God pronounce a curse on Adam and Eve, but he kicked them out of the garden. 
And he didn't just put a gate up. He put cherubim there in a flaming sword that turned every direction so that they would never be able to come in their life to the tree of life. So man fell, but man did not fall apart from grace. And man did not fall without hope. Now, I don't know how hopeful Adam and Eve were at this point, And I don't know how much grace they were aware of. But we, who have been given the gift of the Scriptures and the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we look back to our first parents getting kicked out of the garden, I'm praying that you can see the grace of God and the hope of God that was in operation when God cast them out of the garden. Man fell, but man did not fall apart from grace, and he did not fall without hope. This is true not because man has any hope in himself. It's true because God, in his grace, never leaves us without hope in himself. Your hope is not in yourself or anyone around you. Your hope is in him. Though God will use you, and he will use those around you. And God wants us to love those around us. And God wants us to embrace those around us. And God wants us to understand that we're joined to life with those around us. Our hope is never in ourself. Our hope is always in him. So God allowed man to fall into death because man was never to trust in his own life. I want you to catch this. The fall was not something that caught God by surprise. The fall was something God allowed because God wanted man to know from the very beginning that he cannot trust in his own life. But he was to always trust in the life of another. It was the grace of God that allowed man to fall with the hope and the promise of the coming seed, the coming life, if you will, that would crush the head of the serpent and usher in a new creation. It is the grace of God that put man out of the garden and stationed cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance and the way to the tree of life. Why did God do that? He did that to protect us. He did that to protect us and to keep us from our own life. Look what it says here in verse 23. I'm sorry, 22. And now let us put out, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What was Adam and Eve's condition? They were fallen. At that point, they were eternally fallen. They were living in a state of sin and death. And God said, lest they reach out and take the tree of life and live forever in the condition that they are in, we must cast man out of the garden. It was the grace of God that put man out. Because had man eaten the tree, eaten from the tree of life in his fallen state, he would have lived eternally in sin and death, separated from God and utterly without hope. It is grace that ever works in us, constantly bringing us to the end of ourself, the end of our own expectation and the expectation of others, bringing us to trust in the life of another 
God does this in every way, and He does it in everything because He is good. So we see that from the very beginning, listen, of creation, man's only hope was a new creation. I mean, from the very beginning, we didn't even get, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, scholars don't really know, no, the Bible doesn't say, but, but we do know this. Man could not have been in the garden very long because man was not in the garden even long enough to eat from the tree of life. It seems to indicate that the first tree that Adam and Eve ate from was the tree they were told not to eat from. That tells me that Adam and Eve's stay in the garden was very, very short. And at the very beginning of creation, man has already, God has already revealed to man that your only hope is a new creation. It's like, dude, we haven't even gotten... We're not even two weeks into this one, and we're already talking about a new creation? Yes. Because God created the first creation with the new creation in mind. God created the first man with the second man in mind. God created the first Adam with the last Adam in mind. God did everything in the beginning with the end in mind. So man's only hope has ever been a new creation. Man's hope is not in eating. You would think, well, if they could just eat from the tree of life, surely the tree of life would counter the curse, right? We see that in the fairy tales. We see that in fantasy. You know, they eat the poison, drink the poison. So there's this valiant effort now to make it to the magical tree, the magical fruit, the magical fountain, something. Just, if you just get this on their lips, if they can just taste of this magical thing, it'll counter the curse. That's fantasy. The tree of life would not counter the curse. The tree of life here would have perpetuated man in the curse. God said, no, it's not as simple as just going to the right tree and now eating of that and reversing the curse. No, the only hope is a new creation. And so God did not allow man to come to the tree of life because there was no counter for the fall at that time in that tree. Because a new creation had to come forth first. Man would one day, listen, one day man would eat from the tree of life. But it's not that day. Not until man comes to the end of himself and looks to the life of another. Someone other than himself. Man's only hope has always been a new creation. And this is why God allowed the old creation to fall into sin and death. For God has earnestly planned, eternally planned, and looked to a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth, even in the creation of the first. For the new to come, there must be a passing away of the old. Right? We already, we already see this. So ultimately... There had to be a first in order for there to be a second. So the life of the first man had to give way to the life of the second man. The life of the old man has to give way to the life of the new man. This is why the Bible says throughout the New Testament, put off the old man and put on the new. Put off the old and put on the new. This is what Christ has done for us. So we live in the new. If you are 
born again right now, if you're a new creation right now, you've been made new in Christ, you have already put on the new man. So now the Bible says, so now walk in that newness. When the old tries to creep back into your mind, into your way of thinking, into the way that you live and act and move and talk, when the old tries to come back in, what does the Bible tell us? It says, put off the old because you are not old any longer. You are a new creation. So walk as that new creation. When the darkness tries to creep back in, remind yourself that you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the old has to give way to the new. The life of Adam must give way to the life of Christ. The life of the first creation must give way to the life of a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christian, do you believe that right now? Christian who struggles with sin who struggles in your life to walk in a Christ-like manner. Christian, do you believe that the old has passed away and all things have become new? You better believe that because that is the truth. It doesn't matter that you're still struggling. It doesn't matter that you're still feeling the weight of the curse and the sinfulness of this world that's still under the sway of the curse. You have been set free in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are not your own. You're no longer in the flesh. Romans 8 9 says that if you belong to Christ, you are in the Spirit. And there is therefore now no more condemnation because you are in the Spirit. And because you are in the Spirit, you can walk according to the Spirit even though you don't always. You can think according to the Spirit even though you don't always. And when you don't always walk according to the Spirit, and when you don't always think according to the Spirit, it is the Spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit in you that reminds you that you're not walking and you're not thinking the way that you're supposed to because now you are a new creation. You have been made new in Christ. Christ is your life. You have become a partaker of His life and of His nature. He has given to you, imputed to you, infused you with His righteousness and holiness. And when you act counter to that, contrary to that, it is the Spirit of God. The very conviction you feel is a testimony that you are a new creation. You have to believe the old is really past. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God. The new creation is not something we're waiting to get into one day. You are already living in And you are a new creation if you are in Christ. Yes, the earth is still under the curse. Yes, the earth groans, awaiting the manifestation of the sons of God. But but why is is that day going to come? Because they're already here. Does God have to create a new sun every day for it to rise? No. The sun rises, the sun sets. And when the new sun rises, it's not a new sun, and when it sets, that sun disappears, and then God's got to create a new one. It'd be like saying, well, I'm waiting for God to create the sun, and then I'll see it. No, you see the sun because God's already created the sun. Listen, the manifestation of the sons of God will come forth one day, not because God's going to create them, but because he's already created them. 
The same reason you see the sun rise every day because the sun's already been created is the same reason that the earth will see the manifestations of the sons of God and the new creation because the new creation's already here. It is in Christ. We're not waiting for God to create it one day. It's already been created. We're just waiting for it to come above the horizon where we can see it in its fullness. But it's there. Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things subject to him, but we know that all things have been made subject to him. But we see Jesus. So the life of the first must give way to the life of a new creation. God has ordained this to be possible only in the life of another. You'll never come to a new creation. You'll never partake of the new creation until you partake of the life of another. God eternally willed it and planned it to be that way. And that life that you have to partake of is Christ. So God's eternal plan was always a new creation. And the way to a new creation has always been through death and resurrection. So in the resurrection, listen, when were you, when were you crucified with Christ and when were you raised with Christ? Not one day. It's not when this body comes out of the grave. Now, when you are born again, you, you have to know that you were crucified with Christ in order for you to be raised with Him. So the only way you could have been born again was for you to die with Him and be raised with Him. So in the resurrection as a new creation, and when you were raised up, you were raised up a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. So in the resurrection as a new creation, man eats from the tree of life that is Christ and lives forever. So we see, why do you think God put cherubim with a flaming sword there? Should, should Adam and Eve been afraid of the cherubim and the flaming sword? Yes, they should have been. Because had they tried to get back in that garden and get to that tree, I promise you that cherubim and that sword would cut them down before they could have made one step toward that tree. Do you understand, church, that before you can ever hope to eat from the tree of life, to live in a new creation that you're going to have to be cut down first. That flaming sword represented the cross of Christ. That instrument that would ultimately execute the judgment of God upon mankind in Christ. At the cross, Christ took our sin upon himself. He died our death. And that cross cut the Son of God down. He was laid in a tomb, but three days later, the Spirit of God raised the Son in resurrection life and resurrection power. What did Jesus say? If you desire to be my disciple, take up your cross daily and follow me. When you take up your cross, why are you picking that cross up? Because the intent of the cross, the purpose of the cross, is to cut your life down. Because before you can be resurrected in Christ, you have to be crucified in Christ. But here's the good news. In the old creation, that was death and that was the end. 
in the new creation, in Christ. This is why Christ had to come, and he's called the first fruits of resurrection. This is why he's called the second man. He was the last Adam, but he's the second man of a new creation. So Christ went first before us, and he was cut down at the cross. He was buried, and in three days, he was raised from the dead. He says, now you come after me, and you too be crucified with me. You too come and allow the sword to cut your life down, to be buried, and to be raised. What does the Bible liken the sword to? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. In Hebrews 4, it says God's word is like a two-edged sword. It cuts to the very dividing of, of bone and marrow, and it reveals the intent of the heart. This is why the preaching of the gospel is so important, because this word is like a sword, and that sword cuts us down, and we realize our need to be crucified with the Savior, because only in being crucified with Him can I be raised with Him, Only in being cut down in my life am I allowed to approach and come to the tree of life and partake of life eternal. Because the only life, the only eternal life that God will allow is the eternal life of his son. Heaven is not going to be populated with many different types of eternal life. There's only one life. How many lives does your body have? How many types of life does your body have? Okay, we know it's got human life because we're human, right? Is there any dog in there, any cat in there, any, um, you, any other human life in you? No, it's just human life, right? It's one life. Your life has one life. Not many kinds of life. There's only one life that men in heaven will possess. It is the life of Christ. And the only way to get that is for you to have your own life cut down And God raised you up in his life and then he allows you to come to the tree and eat and partake and live forever. That's good news. So we see God ordained the passing of the first for the sake of the second, the passing of the old to bring about the new. And in this new creation that is now in Christ, all who belong to Jesus live forever in the life and the power of God having been redeemed from the fall By the life of another. It wasn't your life, my life, or any other human life that redeemed you. It was the life of the Son of God. So the new creation is found only in the life of another. That is in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Christ is the life we must look to and trust in. He is the life that is completely other than. In everything, in every way, in all creation... In all of Scripture, listen, and certainly in all the great and the small of our daily lives, in the most mundane of tasks, in the most miserable of circumstances, in the most joyful of circumstances, in everything, in every way, He is molding us and shaping us daily. It's ongoing. It's eternal in us. It is sometimes easy But if we were honest, we would say it's mostly difficult. It is sometimes bitter. It is sometimes sweet. But the Bible, whether we believe it or not, whether we 
know it or not, whether we can speak it or not, the Bible says it is always with joy. And it is always full of glory. This is the work of the Spirit of God molding you and shaping you. Amen? God has revealed these things to us because He wants us to know that we cannot trust in our own life. We must trust in Him. So here's the challenge I want to give you today. Will you stop looking to yourself and begin looking to the life of another? Will you look to the life of the one who is completely other than yourself or anyone else? Will you look to Christ? Will you call out to Him? Will you trust in His life? Will you trust in Christ? Because Christ is. He is our life. And there is life in no other. Let's all stand and we're going to pray. Now I want you just for a moment, I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you a question and I, I want you just to think about it for a moment. I want to ask you to think about how you how you have and how you are living your life, trusting in yourself and not looking to the life of another, and, and specifically in not looking to Christ. Adam and Eve, this is why they fell, because they did not look to God. They looked to themselves. And they did that thing which was against God because they were not looking to the life of another. They were looking to themselves. Father, we just ask that you would reveal to us, all of us, Lord, myself included. Lord, I am most likely more guilty of this than anyone in this room. And I pray, God, that you would reveal to us how we trust in ourselves, in our perceived abilities, how we trust in situations and circumstances, in relationships that are comfortable for us, convenient for us, how we've come to trust in ourselves. Lord, maybe because there hasn't been very many trustworthy people in our lives, so we've not had very many people to trust in except ourselves. But Lord, you are not a man that you should lie. Lord, you're not merely a man who violates trust like so many other men do. You are God. And you are faithful in all things. You are, you are not only truthful, you are the truth.
And Lord, all of our sin can be traced back to this very simple thing that we did not look to you and we did not trust in you because it was true, too easy to trust in ourselves. So Father, bring us to the end of trusting in ourselves. Bring us to the end of trusting in those things or those people that seem so trustworthy but are false. Lord, help us to trust in the life of another. Help us to trust in a life that is other than our own. That would be the life of Christ. Father, work in us and help us to trust you. In your grace, God, bring us to a place where, Lord, we understand that we have no one ultimately to trust in but you. Lord, I pray this, not that we would become more untrusting of other people, but Lord, that we would actually trust other people more. Because we're not placing our trust in people, we're ultimately placing our trust in you. So when people disappoint us, God, when we disappoint ourselves, we understand that we ultimately trust someone that's greater than ourselves, that's greater than the people that let us down greater than our situations and greater than our circumstances. Lord, in this prayer, I'm asking that you help us become more trusting in every way as we trust first in you, as we look first to you and we hold all things in their proper place. Nothing is infallible. Nothing is eternal but you and those things that are in you and of you. So we thank you for your grace, God. We thank you, Lord, whether we invite you or not, you work in us by your grace because you love us. Be glorified in your church, in your people, God, in your bride, be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.